in the previous chapter, John 20, we discover that three days after his crucifixion, Jesus did not stay in the grave, but he rose again from the dead. In victory and in power, Jesus unloosened the chains of death, and he rose again. Jesus was vindicated. He was proven right. Jesus, as he has spoken, he surely is and was the resurrection and the life. So what happens? Well, the disciples, after having experienced the resurrection, after having encountered the resurrected Lord, did they go out into the streets? Did they start to proclaim Jesus' victory? Did they start to spread his kingship and tell the world of Jesus' resurrection? Were the disciples agents and vehicles and instruments of this good news that Jesus is life? Do we find them there? No. Even though they experienced and encountered the risen Lord, we find that the disciples are back in Galilee. They're back in their hometowns, and they're back to their old lives, their former occupation. They are fishing again. Why? These men have encountered the risen Lord. What are they doing going back to their former lives? You know, for us to understand what's going on here with the disciples, we have to understand the psyche of the disciples. You see, it's not that the disciples didn't believe. They witnessed Jesus in his resurrection. They saw him with their own eyes, and they touched the mark of the nails in his hands and in his side. They went to the empty tomb, and they saw that Jesus was raised again. They believed. But it's what happened before. It's what happened before the resurrection. You see, on the night that Jesus was captured, the disciples, they ran away. They deserted Jesus. Peter, the closest disciple, the one who was at the right hand of Jesus the whole time, Peter who said, I will lay down my life for you. When he felt threatened and afraid, he denied Jesus three times. The night that Jesus was captured, the disciples, they ran away afraid and they hid behind closed doors. And now that Jesus is resurrected, how can they just crawl out of their corners and pretend like nothing happened and just continue to be Jesus' disciples? You see, the disciples were dealing with embarrassment. They were facing shame. They were dealing with failure. And in their minds, the disciples thought that they were no longer worthy to be Jesus' disciples, Peter especially. You know, there's this amazing verse in Luke 22, um, as Luke records the night when Jesus is captured and Peter denies Jesus, right? Luke 22, starting from verse 60, right? Um, th this man is asking Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter responds, I have no idea what you're talking about. And this was the third time. And immediately when he did this, the rooster crowed, as Jesus said. And Peter said, and Luke tells us that from afar, as Jesus is standing on trial, verse 61, Jesus actually turns his head 
from afar. And Peter, as the rooster crows, he knows something's up, and he sees Jesus from afar. And that night, as Peter denies him three times, the rooster crows, from afar, the two, their eyes actually meet, and they see each other. I mean, I mean this is where, you know, sappy music ought to come on, right? That's, a, that's the, where they see each other, and Jesus is looking at Peter saying, uh, this is what was going to happen. I mean, how can Peter, right, after going through this, how can he look Jesus in the eye again after what he just did? How can Peter go on publicly being Jesus' disciple when the public knows that Peter was so afraid to even admit that he knew who Jesus was? So we find here at the end of the gospel, John 21, after the powerful resurrection and victory from the grave, we find here at the close of the disciples, at, we find here at the close of the gospel that the disciples were still living through the prism of their past failures. In other words, their failures and their shame, their mistakes were still defining and determining how they were living in the present. See, I think we all know quite well what this feels like. When the mistakes that we've made in the past, when the regret that we have, when the failures that we carry with us become so large, so strong, they start to loom over you, and it starts to almost cripple you. We know that feeling of when our shameful past debilitates us, it disables us. And it starts to define us. The mistakes that we've made in our lives, they, they sometimes feel like a companion that's always walking alongside of us, always reminding us of it. I mean, how many times have you played back a past incident and tried to erase it, tried to do something different because it haunts you? Yes, the human experience, we know what it's like when mistakes and failures feel like a straitjacket, it restricts us in the present as we think back upon the past. Yes, the past has a crippling effect on us. And there's a story that I read of a former Olympic athlete. He was at the Summer Games one year, and he had the great opportunity of representing his country in one of the races. And this was his dream. From the age of 12, this was all that he thought of. This was all that he cared for. This was all that he labored for. He put every penny that he earned and every purchase he made into someday becoming a gold medalist in the event that he loved. But as he told the author of this book, he had a very turbulent relationship with his father. His relationship with his father was one that was so broken and marred by brokenness. His father had no interest in his son becoming an Olympic athlete. And this broken relationship haunted him. It broke him. But still, this young lad, he was determined. As he tells his story to the author, he says that when he was only 17, he filled the world champion in that event for that year. He filmed him. And he trained by breaking down his every stride frame by frame. He started to study his technique. He became so obsessed with it. And then after he filmed that athlete, he filmed himself doing the exact same thing. 
and he studied it, piecing it together one by one, trying to find where he's losing precious time, trying to gap the difference between the world champion and himself. And yes, this man, through sheer willpower, discipline, through determination, he was ready. The games came around, and he not only made the cut for his country's team, but he won every heat at that time. And he was emerging as the favorite for the finals. This athlete says that he was ready, the finals had come up, and his nation was watching him. Millions were cheering for him, and his heart was racing because he knew that next, the next day the headlines would read, country boy makes it big. He knew that this was his moment, everything that he had prepared for and he had obsessed about. And the gun was about to go off as he was readying himself. A thought came into his mind. You know, while the mind can be so determined, so resolute, it can also wander so easily. And in that moment, as he's at the line, ready to run, he starts to think about his father. And it cripples him. The gun goes off and he responds slowly. He loses a fraction of a second in his first two strides, and there it is. He loses the race. He loses gold, he comes in third. He tells this story to the author, wondering why his past was so crippling, why his past was so haunting, why he couldn't shake it off and move forward, why his past and the mistakes that he has and the regrets that he has, why it was holding him back. You know, too often than not, our mistakes and our regrets, they have the power to define us. I failed in school. I got fired from my job. I'm a sexually broken person. I failed in my marriage. I failed in raising kids. I've wronged so many people. I've made so many mistakes. And what happens after a certain amount of time, these failures begin to define us and worse, cripple us. It impedes. It prevents, it hinders. It prevents us from really following after Jesus. You know, I can't tell you how many times in my small mind I've went back into the past and tried to redo some of the mistakes, try to redo some of the regrets and the failures that I have. And every time I do it, I'm only thinking, if I can just fix this, I would be a better disciple. You know, Peter and the disciples in John 21, after the resurrection, they are dealing with this disappointment. It's too big for them to overcome. They can't come out of the shadows. Imagine the public scorn. And so they determine, you know what, it's best if we just live a quiet life, just go back to our former lives. Jesus can find other disciples. He can find other people. He's the resurrected Lord now. We're not worthy. And as the disciples are dealing with this, the aftermath of their mistake, we find that at the end of the gospel, the very last story recorded by John the Apostle is a story about Jesus going out seeking his people. As Jesus has always throughout the entire gospel, Jesus, he's seeking the individual. He is seeking the broken, and he is seeking the shamed. 
We recall many, many months ago, we studied how John, how Jesus went to the woman at the well, how Jesus sought out the invalid, how Jesus went to the blind man, how Jesus raised Lazarus as he goes from individual to individual ministering. And finally, here in the last chapter of John, we see Jesus ministering to Peter. And I want us for a moment as we look at this passage to examine, to see how Jesus comes to Peter. I want us to notice the intention and the care that's behind Jesus seeking him out. The passage begins by telling us the disciples, they decided to go fishing and they are having a rough night. They caught nothing. I mean, these men are professionals. They spent their entire lives by the sea catching fish. They know when the wind blows a certain way or the temperature is a certain way. They know where to go to find fish. But they caught nothing at this point. All of a sudden, a man comes, and from the shore, he tells them, hey, let down your nets on the other side. Jesus, what are you talking about? They don't know that it's Christ at that point, but they're asking, we were fishermen our entire lives. What are you talking about? But they do, and their nets become full. As they're bringing the fish back into the boat, they remember something. Do you know when Jesus first called the disciples? Do you remember how he called them? Luke 5 tells us that when the disciples called the, when Jesus called the disciples, it was the same scenario. They were out fishing. They caught nothing the entire night. And Jesus appears to them and says, let down your nets on this side. Jesus, in John 21, he is calling the disciples back in the same way that he initially called them. As he first encountered them, telling them to let down their nets on the other side, now as the disciples feel shame, embarrassed, filled with regret and mistakes, he he goes to them in a very similar situation, and he says similar words. He's calling them back. When the disciples, they experience this, they realize, oh, this is Jesus. And so they run out, they go back, and Jesus says, bring what you have, let's have breakfast together. As they're having breakfast together, you can imagine the flashbacks that they're having. The meals that they shared as Jesus is making breakfast for them, you can imagine that they're remembering the meals that they shared with Jesus in the past, especially that last meal as he broke bread and he gave it to them saying, here, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus takes bread, he grills fish, and he gives it to his disciples to eat. Surely they are reminded of Jesus' miracle of multiplying bread and fish in John 6 and handing it out. Jesus is so deliberate, he is so intentional. He is bringing back their memory. He is reminding them of the time that they spent together. But for Peter, the only thing on his mind is charcoal. The only thing that he sees is the charcoal on which the fish is being cooked. And charcoals, charcoals. For Peter, it is bringing back memories of that night. When Jesus was arrested, Peter was so cold that he went out and he started to warm himself by a fire made with charcoals. And there, as he's standing, shivering, trying to warm his body, That is the moment he denies Jesus three times. 
And as Peter is met with the Lord here on this beach, we find Jesus, he's calling his disciples back. With so much intention and deliberation, he's recalling their memory, all the good and all the bad. And Jesus, at this point, after they have done eat, finished eating, he breaks the silence with Peter. Sure, after Jesus' resurrection, he spoke to his disciples on a number of occasions. In fact, he appeared to his disciples two times before this. But this was the first time that he addressed Peter individually. This is the first time that he actually spoke to Peter personally. And what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth? He looks over to Peter. After that night where they, their eyes met, and this is the first time Jesus is now talking to Peter individually. He looks over to Peter and he says, you disgust me. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't say that. No, that, that's, what, uh, that's what you and I would say, right? I was thinking about it, and uh, let's get it out there. If you and I, we were Jesus, we would say something like that, right? How could you, right? We would say something like, man, you are a fake friend. I knew it all along, <laughs> right? Some of us would say maybe something like, just very something short. Maybe we'd say, why? Why'd you do that? No, that's not how Jesus responds. The first words out of Jesus' mouth is, Simon, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And he asks this question not once, but he asks him this question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What is Jesus doing here? He knows that Peter has denied Jesus three times. And now with this question, do you love me? He is restoring Peter again. He's reversing his mistake. You know, Jesus doesn't want to know why. He doesn't want to know, hey, Peter, why'd you do it? And he doesn't want to even know, hey, Peter, will you ever do this again? Promise me that you'll never do this. He doesn't want an apology. He restores Peter with love by simply asking, do you love me? You know, some of you know the story of, uh, of how I met my wife, right? Um, not the TV show, How I Met My Wife, but some of you know how, the story of how me, personally, how I met my wife. Uh, and the story that I usually tell is that uh, in the summer of 2009, she came to vacation uh, in New York, and her cousin was a member of the church that I was pastoring at at the time. And so she came on vacation, and I told her, hey, I'll show you around New York. Right? And instead of showing her around New York, we went to Starbucks. We had coffee for three hours. And there, I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. <laughs> And that's the story I tell. Now, I usually end there, because all that is true. Yes, but there's more. There's more that I usually leave out. 
it would be great if everything ended there and there was no conflict and, you know, I came with a white horse and we rode off into the sunset and we lived happily ever after. I mean, that would have been great, right? I mean, and certainly I could have done that because we were near Central Park. There were many horses there. Uh, but but that's, that's not how it, 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 it finishes because uh, on September the 9th, uh, or September 5th, I'm forgetting the dates, but she had to go back. She had to go back. She had to fly back to Beijing. And she flew back to her home with the promise of marriage. But the number one hindrance as she went back was my father-in-law, her father. Because she went back and she said, I went to New York and I met the man that I wanted to marry. And her father said, you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just, just wait. Those of you with daughters, just wait, right? Uh, my father-in-law thought that she was, she was insane. He said, you fell in love with New York. You didn't fall in love with the guy. I was offended. <laughs> but, you know, a few months passed, and I kept writing to her. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking on the phone, you know, we did quiet time together. I mean, I even sent her flowers, right? I mean, you, you know you can send flowers internationally, right? By the time it gets there, it's all dead. <laughs> no, uh, I was able to even send her flowers. But my father-in-law was insistent. He said, this is crazy. So uh, I felt very nervous and anxious, and I felt that time was slipping away. And so what I did was I went out, bought an engagement ring, bought a cheap ticket to China, got on a plane, and I flew over there. I was on a really tight schedule. I was in China just for two nights. And so I had to convince him in two nights. I was a man on a mission. That's how I like to see myself. First night I arrive, it's a 14-hour flight. I take a cab to where the family's meeting. We have dinner, and after dinner, we sit down and we start to talk. Just my father-in-law and myself, one-on-one. And we start to talk, and I'm ready, I'm ready. I'm ready to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. I have all the answers to all of his questions ready. I, I can anticipate what he's going to ask. But that evening, the first night, the only thing he's asking me about is the Bible. He's thinking, oh, well, here's a pastor. Okay, let's see. Let's test his knowledge of the Bible. Let's see how much of the Bible he really knows. And he starts questioning me about the Bible over and over. And I still remember. I mean, he asked me questions like, can a believer lose his salvation? Right. I mean, he's asking me really hard stuff about, like, election and assurance. And th for three hours, he's questioning me about the, about the Bible. Not a word on my relationship with this daughter. I mean, mind you, I just got off a 14-hour flight. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, I did not come all the way over here to give a Bible study. Okay? I came here for something more important. Three hours passes, this long Bible study. He says, you know what, I'm tired, I'm going to go to sleep. He goes off to bed. The next day, I'm so anxious because now I only have one more night. I have my index cards. I have my PowerPoint all prepared, and I'm, I'm ready to answer all of his questions. Where are you going to live? How are you going to take care of my daughter? What's your family background? I mean, I was ready. I felt like Tom Cruise. I had one evening to just nail it, right? It was mission impossible for me. And the night comes again, and we're having dinner, and we're talking, and it's part two of the Bible study. And I'm sitting there, and I'm livid. I'm angry. And I feel like, oh my goodness. This is, I feel it slipping in between my fingers. I'm losing it now. This is one expensive Bible study. 
And all of a sudden, after a few hours pass, he breaks the topic and he says to me, hey, I know why you're here. And I have just one question for you. He looks at me and he says, do you love my daughter? And I don't miss a beat. I look right back at him and I say, yes, sir. I love your daughter. And the next words out of his mouth was, okay, get married. And I was ready for everything. I was ready to answer everything. But the only thing he asked me is, do you love her? You know, this is a simple but profound lesson here in John 21. You know, Jesus doesn't care for all of Peter's confessions and the things that he's done. He simply wants to know, Peter, do you love me? You know, that, that morning while they're having breakfast, I'm sure Peter is thinking in his mind, you know what, what is going to be my explanation? How am I going to tell Jesus, you know, the things that I was feeling? What am I going to say? How can I explain myself that I've actually messed up? How can I work my relationship back with Jesus? And he's thinking about how and why and explanation after explanation. But Jesus doesn't care for those things. He doesn't care for the mistakes that Peter's made. He doesn't even care even for the good that Peter has done. You know what Peter could have said if Peter was really brash? If he was, I mean, if he was, if he was brash, you know, you know what he could have said? He could have said, you know what, Jesus? I'm sick and tired of this. I followed you for three years. I gave you my life. I quit my job. I left my family, and I followed you for three years. One mistake? And you're going to hold me again? You're going to hold this against me? He could have responded in such a way. But Jesus, the only thing that he was interested in, the only thing that he wanted was Peter's heart. He says, do you love me? See, Jesus' aim was to restore Peter with love. As with the bread, the fish, and the charcoal, when Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? What Jesus is doing is he is reminding Peter of how much Jesus has first loved him. As he gives bread and fish, he's reminding him of the miracles that he's done in the past. And when he asks, do you love me? He is reminding Peter of how much he has loved him. Do you love me? He's reminding Peter of what Jesus told him on the night that he was captured. You know what Jesus told Peter? You know what he told his disciples on that last night? Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. Jesus is reminding Peter that the reason why he came, the reason why he suffered, the reason why he was crucified, the reason why he died, and the reason why he came back to seek him again was because he loved him. You know, some of our community groups right now, we're studying John. We're studying John uh, 18 and 19, the crucifixion of Jesus. And you guys are doing a close reading of Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion. And the closer and closer you look at this story, it's preposterous. It's ridiculous, the things that they do to Jesus. How they mock him, how they plotted against him, how they shamed and humiliated him. And for you, the, the one studying this word, the only question that you should be asking is the question, why? 
Why, Jesus, did you endure such humiliation? Why, Jesus, did you endure such mockery? And the answer is because he loves us. John is filled with this statement. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The gospel is filled with the pronouncement that Jesus loves us eternally. He loves us unconditionally. And at the close of the gospel, Jesus now to remind his disciples of his love and to now bring them back, to call them back to discipleship, he asks, do you love me. And when Peter answers, I do. I do, I do. Jesus then says again, follow me. The first words that Jesus spoke to Peter in John 1 are the last words that he speaks to in John 21. Follow me. Do you love me? Follow me. I just need to mention this briefly. Uh, we started by saying that Peter and the disciples, they are crippled by the past and the mistakes that they've made. And now it seems that Jesus' love has freed them, it has liberated them, and now they are ready to follow Jesus. However, when Jesus says, hey, listen, now you're gonna go where you don't wanna go. Other people are gonna dress you, and you're going to have to follow me. Peter becomes worried again. He becomes scared again. Before, it was the past that crippled him, but now Peter is worried about the future. Not only is he worried about the future, he looks over to Jesus and he says, okay, I'll follow you, but what about that disciple? Not only is he worried about the future, but he's worried about other people now. And Jesus tells Peter, hey, don't worry about that person. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about what's gonna happen. Don't worry about other people. Just follow me. And he reaffirms it. Friends, uh, church, I, I don't know where each of you are at right now, but I think I can take a good guess that many of your discipleship, many of you following after Jesus has either been hindered by your past the mistakes and the regrets that you carry, the shame that you face, or it's either being hindered by your future, the uncertainty of what it means to follow Jesus, or your discipleship is being hindered by you looking to others. What about him? What about her? What about them? Crippled by the past, fearful of the future, and looking to others and not to Jesus. Friends, on this morning, our Lord is interested in one thing. He's asking you today, do you love me? Do you love me? If so, follow him. Jesus wants your heart. He just doesn't want your body. He just doesn't want your service. He just doesn't want your presence. He doesn't want just your mental acknowledgement. He wants your affections, and he restores you in this way. For those of you carrying around the weight of sin and shame and regret and mistakes and failures, 
You don't have to come back to Jesus by saying, hey, listen, let me explain to you. I can tell you why. No, he wants to simply know, do you love me? You know, and as I close, I started to think a lot about this. Because yes, I think our services, I think our worship, I think our prayers are filled with uh, worship. They're filled with uh, all sorts of confessions to Jesus. They're filled with uh, a lot of superlatives, like, God, you are the amazing God. You are the great I am. You are the creator God. You are this and this and this and that. But I started to think back, when was the last time that we simply confessed, Jesus, I love you? To answer the question, do you love me? And say, yes, I do. Let's bow our heads in prayer this time.